Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm Theo Black. I'm Sarah Black. And um, we are finishing off uh, Marilyn Monroe. And uh, as you know, Jill pointed this out, and I hadn't really thought about this, but these are releasing kind of a week late, so this will actually be the first podcast in December. We're gonna actually we should think about that, but not to worry about that now. We're yeah. finishing off Marilyn Monroe, which means uh, we're doing these in chronological order. So some like it hot. Right. And I think something that's worth noting is that she did a lot of other movies and I'm kind of curious about her other movies, despite the failure that was monkey business, which is one of the ones that's like kind of not on the list for her. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting how few movies she's, she really is famous for in some ways, but that's the way a lot of, you know, you, you, you do a lot of movies, only so many of them are really good and a yeah. lot of them are just fine. So, yeah. You know, versus, I mean, you think of like uh, Tom Hanks, you know, he's, he's been in so many movies and so many of them, you know, are, are famous. Um, yeah. I don't know about any contemporaries of Marilyn Monroe. I don't know. Judy Garland. I don't know. She had a long career, you know. Yeah, so I mean, part career, of it's but... Marilyn Monroe's career wasn't that long. She was 36 when she died. So, um, yeah. anyway, some like it hot. Some like it hot. So we had both some, seen this. Some don't. Some some don't. Some do. Uh, we had both seen this. This is, I think, the only movie on the list we had both. Seen. No, gentlemen prefer blonde. Anyways, we had both seen this before. I hadn't seen it for a long time. I'd seen it like when I was a young teenager, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and when was the last time you saw it before this? Probably I was late teens, early 20s. So it's been a while. Probably it was the same time for both of us yeah. <laughs> that we saw it. And I was kind of like, I know that everybody, you know, I know that it's a really famous movie. I don't know how many people love it or not. I mean, it's it's definitely at the time it was very pop- or popular or I don't know if at the time it was popular, but it did eventually become very popular and it is a, a very noteworthy movie. And um, it's uh, Billy Wilder and he, you know, it's one of the movies that gets referenced when they talk about his filmography of great films. Right. He's the director that did Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment and either of those I would much rather watch than Some Like It Hot, which is not terrible. But hey, real quickly, spoilers. We're going to talk about yes. everything. We're going to spoil anything we talk about. So if you hear a movie title come up and you don't want to know how it ends, you may want to be cautious. Yes, we, we are pretty likely to spoil it. So the synopsis for this is interesting, and I'm going to take this one because I want you to do the misfits, and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to do this instead. Um, I'm taking the DVD for myself, as it were, if we're we're copying Best of the Worst. Uh, So our two leads, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, are a, a... saxophone player and a cello player is that what he plays something like that it's a string instrument i think it's a cello uh and they play they're playing at a a a, i guess what would they be called a speakeasy i don't know it's it's prohibition so they're playing at a bar that isn't a bar it's in the back room of a funeral uh, Mm -hmm. parlor and it gets raided and so they then have to find a way to get themselves money and in the process of doing this they try to borrow someone's car except they're in the parking garage where the St. Valentine's Day Massacre happens, which is a real it's thing. Not, it's not quite the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but it is heavily, it is heavily based on the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which occurred in Chicago 1929, February yes. 14th. 
Yes. Now this this now some like it hot is from 1959, but the movie takes place in 1929. Yes. And so they're there when it happens, and so they then run. They they manage to escape before being murdered, and they are complaining earlier in the movie. They're complaining about all these girl bands and whatever, and so they decide to dress in drag. I guess is the words. They wear dresses and they pose as women, uh, and then they are a part of this band and this band winds up, winds up in Florida and Marilyn Monroe is there and it's kind of rom-com-ish until the crime elements show back up at the end of the movie and that was a pretty poor synopsis but also I don't I think that I did okay considering how little story and plot there actually There's is. There's not in this much movie. plot to this movie. The crime forces them to go on the run cross-dressing but once they join the female band, the there is no danger or threat from the crime until the very, very end of the it film. It essentially changes into a rom-com at that point. Uh, San Diego plays Florida in this film. It is the Del Coronado, which is a very famous uh, old hotel down in San Diego, California. Um, and it is standing in for Florida. It does okay. I mean, I think it could have tried harder, but it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, this movie isn't bad, but, and I, I, I just, I, someone who likes it more needs to explain. Yeah, like it's game shows- power to me because, the, I mean, the nice, the good stuff, the good stuff is, I don't feel like women were made fun of. There's some Mostly, subversive yeah. bits. Uh, you know, their acting is good. A I lot can of the understand. Plot is, nonsense sorry what were you saying i can understand that it's funny to many people i don't personally find it that funny but whatever (laughs) i think i'm really coming to understand why i struggle so much with romantic comedies because usually they're not romantic like to me this movie it's it's called a um black and white romantic comedy by wikipedia and it's like I, i feel like there needs to be a distinction between like comedies with romantic elements and because so Tony Curtis um, decides to he wants to be with Marilyn Monroe for reasons we never really understand or see and he does a Cary Grant impersonation as far as I can tell then it's yeah. fine to fool her into loving him and it, it's there's there's no real emotion to it like it's all comedy it's all playing with the fact that she's so dumb that she'll fall for him. I mean, she literally has to say how dumb she is three or four times in the movie. They have her character say that I am dumb. Like she doesn't literally say I am dumb, but she says, I guess I'm not very bright or something like that. Like she says it more than once. So I personally was more drawn to the romance between Jack Lemmon and that older rich guy. Like there was something kind of charming about what was going on there. Yes. Uh, It took up way less screen time. Joe E. Brown playing Osgood Feeling. Oscar, that's right. She called him Oscar. Right, but it was Osgood. And he called him Oscar. Right. Uh, Okay, so there's in, in, uh, here's a, we're gonna shoot to the side and then back to the movie. So in the Lego movie two. Okay. Chris Pratt. Not famously, but for people who saw it and who are aware of this kind of thing, was doing a version of Kurt Russell in the movie. 
Right. As far as most people know, Chris Pratt and Kurt Russell are friends and they enjoy each other's company and all that, which is great. I like them as actors. Chris Pratt is religious in a way that I don't understand, but that's, you know, just a different life. Is that part of this conversation? (laughs) No, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to sort of think like, but Kurt Russell is, you know, completely different. That's, but they're friends, you know, that's kind of cute. And so it's like, you see, then we shoot back to the side. And so Tony Curtis is doing a a version of Cary Grant. And I'm like, is that, I assume it's intentional. It seemed intentional. Yeah. Are they friends? You know, what's the story there? You know, Cary Grant yeah. had, you know, a specific kind of lifestyle. You know, he was not openly gay, but all, all reports say that he was. And, you know, so I'm curious about some of that. And the reason mm-hmm. I bring that up, because besides the fact that it's kind of interesting that like that's happening in this movie as like a right. sidebar, also, one of the reasons this movie is kind of famous is we watched Disclosure recently and we also watched um, The Celluloid Closet and Some Like It Hot comes up in both of those movies mm-hmm. because there are not that many movies where men are dressing in drag, for one. Mm-hmm. And while that's not the same as being trans, right? it's at least with somewhere in the same sphere of LGBTQIA mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And it is often referenced it seems to be referenced in stuff concerning that and mm-hmm. concerning the history of LGBTQIA cinema. Right. And for that same token, at the very end, Jack Lemmon is, you know, like, well, the reason we can't marry is I'm a man. And Osgood's response to that is, well, no one's perfect. Right. Which is a very sort of forward, like open <laughs> sexuality kind of thing that I feel like you got there. And really, I mean, this is 1959. We're not in the thirties or forties, but still right. it's not like you get that in movies very much. Right. So that's a well, the part other, of- the other interesting thing you're not mentioning that I only am now remembering because I glanced at the Wikipedia is that um, Tony Curtis playing Cary Grant has a, is an issue in that he is frigid. Right. And Marilyn Monroe needs to like warm him up. So there, there's an odd sexuality thing going on there. As far as I can tell, the actual Tony Curtis character, Joe, I think. Yeah. Um, Joe Josephine yeah. uh, is not frigid. So he's just doing this to get Marilyn Monroe to like cuddle up to him or something. But it's interesting yeah. that playing, he's playing a Cary Grant knockoff who's not attracted to women or men. If you're, right. I mean, if he's frigid, he's not attracted to anyone. I, frigid isn't an old term. I'm sure it's not kosher, but right. it, you know, it, it, I, I know he, he does saying. get cured of it too. So clearly he's not like actually asexual or anything or playing it. I mean, it's very, see, we're getting, getting yeah, the it's... weeds here, but yeah, no, that, that makes this movie more interesting than it felt like watching it <laughs> yes yeah, see then that's where i kind of like have to like look at this movie and be like well it occupies an important place in history for a number yeah. of reasons marilyn monroe the reasons we just mentioned uh, yeah uh, i think i mean jack lemon and tony curtis were both famous actors edward i forgot but edward g robinson who is in a number of noirs i like is the gangster who kills spats colombo and i didn't realize it because he is rather skinny and he ends up being a bit larger in his later roles yeah he must have also been very young in this or at least well i guess not very young or edward Edward g G. robinson this is edward g robinson jr oh so this must be this maybe this is the son yeah edward g robinson is much (laughs) older he was working since um he was right. born in 1893. So, you know, this is his son. 
Oh, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I guess this must have been his son. Anyways, which I find interesting because I like Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's kind of and then on top of that, you know, it's 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 a black and white movie in 1959 and we were still doing black and white in the 50s, but we were moving away from it. I think someone said, was it you or I don't know where I heard this, but it, oh no, it was on You Must Remember This. This was like the most expensive black and white movie ever made. And that more or less doomed it to not make as much money because at this point, people are more interested in Technicolor mm. movies like Gigi or something, <laughs> which I think came out, a, which came out a year before this. And yes, Lily, which came out like seven several years, years before this. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, so, and and we should say, you know, we we listened, we finally caught up and watched the third episode of the You Must Listen Remember This to, but yes. yeah, trilogy of episodes about Marilyn Monroe and I re-listened to the second one because I wanted to remember some of the stuff from it and Marilyn herself thought this was the dumbest blonde she ever played and it's just and like you say she's not wrong she's got less depth so this is her with Billy Wilder as a director again and I would say she actually had slightly more depth in um, Seven Year Itch because there was this implication in Seven Year Itch that she kind of understood the wife's point of view of this crazy man who keeps deluding himself that she wants to sleep with him in right. seven year age like so there was a something going on here she is just there to react to things in um some like it hot and react stupidly to give yeah. kind of tony curtis things to do it's really she's a I mean, blank she's sexy she's vulnerable she's appealing your eyes go straight to her but not much is going on there's she is she is sexy tabula rasa yeah like there's like, not much it's there's nothing there really she gets she gets one scene where she just you know she gets to monologue and sort of talk about like making bad choices and all these saxophone players she's been with and kind of being a yeah. bit of a mess and she gets to you know play her ukulele which it didn't look like she actually knew how to play but then again nobody looked like they knew what they were doing <laughs> maybe some of the other characters but and she gets to sing and so you know we get some song and dance from her and she's good at the comedy and you know she she does the whole when when they're I would on the say I, sorry keep going when they're on the yacht and like you know we've got our frigid Cary Grant and she's you know kissing him and all that you know I understand how that could be funny but this isn't like her at her best like that would be gentlemen prefer blonde for me of what i've seen you know i think that's that or harry to mary mary a millionaire are probably her best comedic performances right and so i you know i don't shrug i'm a shrugging i'm sort of I mean, like i shrugging. prefer her performance in bus stop over this like she's she's well she's got doing... more to do in bus stop yeah which is Some... bizarre something i was going to mention maybe more with the misfits but i think it goes here is i it, it also also Besides just the fact that she was in a limited number of movies that really matter, um, sorry, other movies, it's just that, that still get talked about. That's a better way of putting it. Right. She's never, it feels like she's never really a starring role. But when I think about that, I think that's just women in Hollywood at the time. You know, you were usually playing against a man. Like I think about like, or other women, like How to Marry a Millionaire, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, it's her and Jane Russell. It's her and Lauren McCall and Betty Grable. It's her and um, Joseph Cotton and Max Showalter and that Jean Peters. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name um, in Niagara. Like she's never, 
but that makes me think of how rare it was. Like I think of the Rita Hayworth movies I've seen and she's with Gene Kelly or she's with Fred Astaire. She's with, you know, these other, you know, and, and I was talking about wanting to see Marilyn Monroe kind of up with better men. And I think some of her better movies, you know, the men are more interesting or the, you know, the women, she and I like her and Jane Russell and um, Gentlemen for Blondes, but it makes me think about, you know, Betty Davis and how hard she fought to get certain roles and like how much All About Eve must have just been like, because that like she is the star of that movie. Well, um, yeah. I mean, and then you think about like, oh, I don't know, Wizard of Oz, like there's Judy Garland is definitely the star of that movie. But it just makes you think about how rare that was. Like, it doesn't feel like she commanded an entire movie on her own. It's weird because she had all this power, right? At one point, yeah. you know, she was the biggest star in Hollywood. And Karina Longworth talks about that and how she worked to get like something like Bus Stop as one of the films she was doing right. made. You know, she was, I guess she was a producer on it or her yes. company was. Yeah. And it's like, there are plenty of movies from the 30s and 40s and 50s where women are the stars, but it's, uh, plenty is, is the word I'm using, but it's like, they are, you, you get those movies, but it, they're not really as many as you think they are. And even in those movies, it really depends. Like, yeah. you know, it's How to Marry I mean, a Millionaire and Gentlemen Prefer Blonde feels somewhat unique. Like you mm -hmm. don't, like I watched Working Girls yesterday um, mm -hmm. and it's Dorothy Arzner and it's 1931, I think. And it's a movie about women. Mm -hmm. and there are male characters and they aren't like empty. They're, they're, there's stuff going on there. But mm -hmm. like, you know, I just like watching Working Girls, I'm like, you know, it's really, there aren't as many of these. Like you get a rom-com, but in the rom-com, the woman is never as well-written as the man, like almost yeah. ever. Like it's that thing where it's like, maybe if like they're, probably the majority movie of movies are, you know, male, female leads of some kind, maybe male, male leads, I'm not right. sure. But the time when you do get male women movies, you know, in terms of traditional, you know, male women here, we're not talking, you know, this is before the idea of, you this know, is... open gender, you know, right. when you get male women, the women characters are always underwritten, not always, I shouldn't say yeah. always, they're often underwritten. So it's like, it's kind of frustrating in a way, because like you see some like it hot and it's this movie and Marilyn Monroe's in it. And it's really a Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis movie, you know? It's... Yeah, totally. That's what I was yeah and so, they did I good know. i mean i don't feel like they're making fun of women um in fact they they several times comment on how hard it is to be a woman one of my favorite scenes from that would be the one where you know uh uh the jack lemon character on the train is like trying to kind of have this a little bit of a tete-a-tete -tete, i don't know what i want to call it and it's just he gets overwhelmed by how wild and body the women are basically like they create yeah. this whole big party yeah. and you know he it's not necessarily that he thinks women are all gentle little virginal angels. It's just, he didn't expect it to be this overwhelming. Like he, yeah, he There's thought a... he could kind of like have this little, you know, little secret party. And instead it, you know, they're the ones that keep inviting each other and they turn a, um, a hot water bottle into a cocktail shaker. And they're like, they're crammed into his, um, he has a, it's the compartment beds in a train. They're all crammed into the top yeah. one while underneath Tony Curtis's character, you know, who's told Jack Lemon to be quiet and careful is like trying to sleep. 
Yeah, it's 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 a duck soup, you know. I think it's duck soup, or you no? Know, it's the night at the opera. It's that that boat scene, you know. It's, it's I think that... it's I haven't seen Night of the Opera, but I've seen duck duck soup, so I think it's Night of the Opera. Night, night of the opera. opera, yeah. It's that kind of scene, and you know, I would we'll talk about this a little when we get to John Houston with the Misfits. But Billy Wilder was a man who I think had some some knowledge of things that might have been wrong in his day with society or maybe not wrong, but maybe things that could be improved upon. Right. And Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies. And I would like to think that Norma Desmond is a really well-written character. Mm -hmm. And Marilyn Monroe doesn't get the same treatment. And right. men are imperfect. And <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of movies are made by men. Women are also imperfect, but men are imperfect in a way where the women usually get short shrift or whatever yeah. it's called. Well, and everyone so, has biases, but when, you know, your majority creators are men, those are the biases you're going to get. Right. That was a much more eloquent way of saying <laughs> what I was trying to say. And I'm trying, but what I'm trying to say is Billy Wilder, I think actually had some clue as to what might have been right. wrong with the way we looked at women and how we treated women in society and culture. Right. It's possible to care about women and believe in women and still dismiss Marilyn Monroe because yes. she's not the right kind of woman. Yes, no, Billy Wilder is multifaceted. I mean, I think, have you seen The Apartment? No. I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm going off of memory. But, you know, I think there's a lot of empathy for the Shirley MacLaine character in that movie who is kind of being used by the men around her. I don't know why. I mean, and, and The Apartment is definitely darker than yeah. some like it hot like it's a uh, uh, some like it hot is pretty light and again we never know how much the studios interfered i know oh, he yeah. met, billy he wilder knows. mentioned in in something about seven year itch that like it, you know they should have just slept together or something you know like he yeah you're hamstrung an artist is always hamstrung by many things you know yeah. some of them totally you know some of them societal some of them just you know just art is, yeah you know so yeah and it's that thing where some like it hot is is again not making fun of the women characters and indeed the sympathy seems to lie with the women characters in multiple scenes which is where i'm like i think billy wilder had a clue what was going on but marilyn monroe's character is just so empty yeah so it's funny because i we, we after last week's episode we, we mentioned talking about specifics right we want to make sure right. we talk about specifics and i'm like trying to think of specifics about marilyn monroe's character where to like really make this point solid and it's like i don't know you, if you just watch the movie like every scene she's in she's kind of just there for tony curtis to to bounce off of and yeah. you know do his phony I think about the scene where she goes to the yacht with him and just makes a bunch of stupid comments about a a, a, de a fish yeah. trophy uh, I mean yeah. and it's what it's kind so, of fish is that it's so inane it's so yeah. the, but it, it doesn't reveal anything about her character like you said we, we already talked about the one character moment where she's you know bad with men but like that's so empty there's there's nothing more right and in gentlemen prefer blonde you know she has some really great lines I think that's yeah. Howard Hawks right yes. gentlemen prefer blondes yeah um and like she has some really great lines you know where there was you know she's she is not as savvy. smart as, you know she's She's, yeah. you know, it's just as easy to fall in love with a rich man as a poor man, you know, and <laughs> yeah. there's all that kind of stuff in that movie. And it's, again, I, you know, I, I like gentlemen prefer blondes more than this movie, you know. It's, no, I agree. It, I would actually say my top three, Marilyn Monroe, although maybe I should save this for the Misfits, but my top three include gentlemen prefer blondes. I would, I think so too. I think yeah. so too. 
Yeah. Anyways, I think I've kind of exhausted all I've my thoughts. I've said more about this than I thought I was going to, because there's really not that much for me in this movie. It's fine. I don't think you shouldn't see it if you want to see it. I don't think you should see it if you don't want to see it. It's, fi- it's fine. Yeah, no, it's, it's I know. It's it famous for reasons. Tony Curtis and, and Jack Lemmon. The, and they're good. To be a Marilyn Monroe completist. But there's, yeah. you know. It's an important movie in Hollywood history. Like, there's a lot of reasons to watch it. It's just... It's kind of it's a it's a little bit of a letdown having seen it younger and sort of enjoyed it right. and being a little older now and being like you know it's a letdown when there's this famous movie that a lot of people talk about and it just isn't that good yeah. to you I didn't enjoy yeah. it that much you know yeah agreed yeah. okay so let's talk about the Misfits not yes. the band or whatever that is but the movie from 1961 yes we're this gonna is... spoil it we're gonna spoil Spoily any spoil. movie we talk about um yeah and you want me to do the synopsis i don't want to do the synopsis for this one (laughs) marilyn monroe is a recently divorced woman in fact we see her get the divorce who's kind of doesn't know what to do with herself it seems like maybe she's kind of her life has been ruled by men to a degree but don't worry it will continue to be ruled by men she ends up going out to the countryside of reno um nevada area uh with clark gable's character guy or gay um and um eli wallach's character guido shows up a bunch and everyone is broken by life everyone is sad about life and she has to babysit them um there's a lot about kind of masculinity and destruction because guy uh gay i don't know why i want to call him guy gay is um he rounds up wild horses and sells them for dog meat and she objects to this uh the end i mean i don't i think i know why you gave me this movie to to synopsize what i want to say about it ties (laughs) into that a little bit immediately i saw that we are are leaving 50s technicolor hollywood with this movie in some ways it reminds me it Cassavetes had directed one film prior to this I looked it up it makes me think of like Cassavetes although it's not nearly as as kind of loose and independent um but it makes me think of like a lot of the European Ingmar Bergman was directing by now Fellini was directing by now I think Antonioni was directing by now Uh, all Kurosawa was directing by now all these more social drama European naturalistic like films are, are being happening in Europe and I could I, I don't know you know you assume John Houston is aware I don't know if he'd have been aware of like Cassavetti's one film but you assume he's aware of the of what's happening internationally with cinema you would think yeah yeah 400 blows had come out a few years earlier you know that's a big one um and it felt like that's what he was kind of tying into now obviously there's more social real stuff from the 50s that Marilyn Monroe wasn't really a part of but they all had this very structured Hollywood feel to me you think about like on the waterfront or like those kind of movies and with all I I think it was some of the filmmaking in the misfits like there was a lot of close-ups and kind of just the way the shots were made me think like he was going for something a little more natural looking yeah um, and it makes me think of Night of the Iguana, which you didn't watch. Um, and even in the title, The Misfits. So 50s was all about conformity, right? About like, you know, we're doing well. We, we did well in the war. 
we're going to enjoy this. Um, Let's all be the same kind of a thing. So then the 60s is like, well, a bunch of us didn't fit that. You know, what do these people who don't, what do these misfits do? So I feel like in that way, the movie also ties into where we're going historically. So I thought it was really interesting for that reason. And, and it reminded me of, of Night of the Iguana and, and some of the stuff we're going to see going into 60s and 70s and that the plot was very loose. It was really just kind of following this group of people as they went through this kind of... <sighs> There's no plot. It's a story about weakness and vulnerability and masculinity and um, finding a place and so on. And that made me think... So Night of the Iguana is from a few years later. It's based on a Tennessee Williams play. It's some Americans down in Central, I think they're in Mexico, but Central America, um, who don't really fit in, who kind of end up as a group together, yeah. you know? And in that case, it's three women and one man instead of three men and one woman, but it has that same. So uh, that was really interesting to me that, that I could see how we were moving away. And, and John Huston, you know, having directed for a while, you know, it felt very innovative of him in some ways, but, you know, Cassavetes would never have Marilyn Monroe, you know, like he was very indie. Um, I don't, you know, the European system worked differently, but to have this kind of attempt at like a, a, a naturalistic movie starring Marilyn Monroe, Clark Gable and Montgomery Clift is kind of an interesting piece of film to me and I, I don't know enough to know what else looked like that at the time I like how you're looking at this because that is all there and I was actually what I made what the the, the in I made to this movie early on is they're walking around Reno and it's black and white right it's mm-hmm. black and white I'm not going mm-hmm. crazy I wonder yeah. if this is actually the one that was the most expensive black and white movie I think it was some like it hot but anyways um well okay so two things one some like it hot I think this is the most expensive black and white movie. I think. Well, I screwed up, but (laughs) either way, they were. This was a flop, and some like it hot. I think made money, but not as much as it could have. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, So, some like it hot has some of that '50s craziness in it. So we're like, it's not quite as morally confused as you know things we'll talk about in just a minute. (laughs) Or bus stop. (laughs) Or bus stop, which came out a little earlier. Like, it's not as morally confused and weird as that, but it is kind of kooky 50s. Like, we're sort of at the end, you know, we're going, you know, West Side Story is early 60s, but so you could, they were still this stuff, but like, you get a little bit of that. Whereas The Misfits is more of an attempt towards like realistic type cinema and realism and all that. It's not there yet. It's still Hollywood, but all these still, overdone yeah, lines. Yeah, it still has and, this very, well, let me get to that. that. I get to talk about that, but it's I won't still, talk yeah, it's starring these big stars and it's still, has kind of a Hollywood climax to it. Like, yeah, that's, that's not how Ingmar Bergman would end it. I feel like, you know, no, I mean? not really. But so, okay. And so there's, so we're going from some like it hot to the misfits and that's, we're kind of shifting eras a little bit between the two. Right. And I was looking at it, them walking around Reno and I'm like, you know, this is reminding me of uh, carnival of souls because of her running around the streets in Carnival of Souls kind of remind just it's black and white and it's from Carnival of Souls is only a year later and it didn't become popular until after it was released much later I think it became popular as a rerun on TV yeah Carnival Um, of Souls yes yeah something like that and I'm thinking about Carnival of Souls because Carnival of Souls has a similar issue I think where it's kind of this thing where we're moving into a 
an attempt at realism, right? which is where movies shifted to, I guess, in the 60s and how they have kind of been since then, or at least not all movies, but there is an attempt in a, in, in a, a one style of filmmaking is to go for more realism, more sort of, you know, mm-hmm. this is how people actually are. And Carnival of Souls is caught between, you know, stylized, weird, sort of like theater, sort of big Hollywood acting and down to earth realism, nobody casts and kind of simple plots and that kind of thing. And The Misfits, I think, is in the same place as Carnival of Souls, which are not two movies I would have ever put together in my head until having seen them. But now that I've seen them, you know, I enjoyed The Misfits, but it does kind of get caught in that area where it wants to be like these European movies you're talking about or Cassavetes or something. I don't really know Cassavetes that well. I'm sorry, I should watch his movies. But caught between something like that and something like, you know, I don't know, something bigger and broader. On the waterfront. um, Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. I don't know. You know, yeah. something something much more. You know, the African yeah. Queen. Even that's a different Houston yeah. film. You know, it's it's caught somewhere in there. Right. So that's my thought for that. You may now yes. discuss the dialogue if you so decide. So my my major problem with this film is that the dialogue is overwritten. Um, from Karina Longworth's, uh, you know, you must remember this on Marilyn Monroe and stuff I've read. Uh, Arthur Miller was working on rewrites while he was doing it. And everybody speaks in um, philosophical statements all the time. Yeah. And it feels to me like an East uh, man. And I'm going to be, you know, I'm making huge presumptions here, but it feels like a man from um the northeast uh from the east coast writing what he thinks cowboys would talk like but making sure they still sound smart and it is just just endless kind of philosophical statements i don't know how else to put it in and you know no one's like well i'm hot it's like you know what it's like to be hot you know, it's like they, they can't just have a simple conversation. It has to be these greater statements about life. But people don't talk like that. And people who are, who are um, not all cowboys, but I think what Arthur Miller is going for, like people who are uneducated can still be very intelligent and say intelligent things, but they're not yes. going to talk like they're from New York and went to Ivy League schools. They're going to just use different words and say things differently. Right. But he, he's got something weird going on. But on top of that, I mean, this, we were just talking about how the, you know, John Houston's trying to do this naturalistic style. It feels very unnatural. So even without the overwritten parts, some of the stuff that did work sounds like people in a play, people talking like they are in a play, but they're shot like this is supposed to be real. So the style to me of the dialogue clashed with the style of the movie itself. And, and those things were, you get frustrated when you see bad filmmaking. I don't, I get frustrated when the dialogue, you know, dialogue doesn't need to always be brilliant. 
you know, there's, I, I love plenty of things that where the dialogue just is fine. You know, exposition is a thing that needs to happen. You know, right. sometimes you just do what you got to do. Sometimes but your new care just tells you it. <laughs> yes. And, and depending on what the movie is, it's more or less important for the dialogue to, to be a certain way. But in this case, I felt like it's clashed stylistically and it, it was kind of overwrought because you have this movie and there, you know, the, the house that, Gay and um, Rosalind, I think is her name, Marilyn Monroe's character, are staying in. It's only partially. It's like everything had to be a symbol for something. And when when everything is is at a 10, it it kind of becomes meaningless. You know, when when all the you know, when Eli Wallach as Greedo is like driving and crying about how as a bombardier, he was a blind bombardier, just, you know, killing people he didn't met it just you stop feeling anything <laughs> so it's, it's that all didn't work for me and i think yeah that's, that's movie, what i have to say about that <laughs> so i have a thought on the dialogue and this aspect which is it is overwrought and because it's overwrought it you just sort of lose the emotion of it <laughs> yeah you know it's it's not there's it's not that there's no emotion it's that you have emotions and then they start talking in a certain way and you're like jesus this is like you know, it's it like too much. All the emotions are intellectualized. So it's yeah. very, you don't feel them. It's They're very heady. And that's what the, why I was saying philosophical. It's like every feeling is intellectualized. No one is, no one is genuinely feeling anything. They're talking right. about the greater meaning and experience of their feeling constantly. Yes. And a part what my, my takeaway because ultimately the I tend not to mind so much if the dialogue is a little bad or overwritten you know as you said doesn't bother me as much but at the same time something you learn if you get interested in writing is that every character needs to have their own voice or at least right. that's one of the theories and one of the ways people are suggested to write and each actor is their own actor in this movie. It's not like Montgomery Clift and, you know, Eli Wallach are, are the same person, but their dialogue sounds similar in the way that they're sort of giving these platitudes or, or like these eloquent phrases or like, you know, well, I should do this, you know, maybe out of all of them, Montgomery Clift might have the least sort of to say in terms of eloquent phrases. So he sounds a little different, but like. He felt the most differentiated. And yeah. He, yeah, I agree. But 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 you like Wallach, Clark Gable, and Marilyn Monroe. They all sound the same. They don't yeah. really have unique individual voices, as yeah. far as I can tell. Like there's this one line that Clark Gable gives. You know, you you look so sad, or I've never met someone right. who seems so sad as you. And that apparently comes from real life, and it's a great line. But later, when you have you like Wallach going, well, "I'm a blonde. I was a blind bombardier. I was throwing bombs on people I didn't even know," and it's yeah. just those lines sound like they come from the same person. And right. so it's one thing if you have one character who's, you know, a cowboy speaks like a cowboy, but is intelligent and smart and speaks in a certain way, that's fine. But when kind of all three of them, plus Thelma Ritter's character, are delivering lines and, you know, these lines and they're written this way, it just, well, it's 
too there's much. some really good lines in there but they just get lost in all the other ones that that are trying too hard well and we were talking about treasure of the sierra madre because we were talking about houston and his filmography and we've seen in the, in several of his movies and treasure of the sierra madre has you know badges we don't need no stinking badges you know it's a yeah. great line that's been copied everywhere yeah and that movie to me is more memorable for how differentiated the characters were. You know, you have Walter Houston, right. John Houston's dad playing a specific kind of character. And I just always remember that character. You know, he doesn't really seem like a real person, but then again, he seemed like not a real person, except, you know, I know somebody like that. You know, he's that well, kind they, of- It's more visceral. That movie's more visceral. It, it yeah. actually has more, it doesn't have this intellectual quality that's, that's overdone in The Misfits. Yeah. And, um, the thing I, I forgot to mention that you're reminding me is too, is that the dialogue is like wall to wall in a lot of the scenes. People are just talking through the entire yeah, scene. Few, whereas I don't remember Treasure of the Sierra Madre being like that. I remember there being silences and moments where the actors can can act without it having to be a conversation. And I don't know if that, I don't know Arthur Miller's work very well. I understand he is a very good playwright. Um, but maybe there was some quality of having him do this film and he and Marilyn Monroe's relationship was falling apart that, that it just felt like he needed to, again, making huge suppositions about who he was and what he was trying to yeah. do, but like, it just filled this, this movie with just noise. It, it, there's some action scenes where there's no dialogue, but otherwise it is pretty much wall-to-wall -wall dialogue. And we, we, were, we thought it looked really pretty and the cinematographer was Russell Mitty. Got that right. Medi, M-E-T-T-E, -E, I think, something yeah. like that. Yeah, Medi. And he did, had done cinematography. M-E-T-T-Y, sorry, Medi. Medi. So he did cinematography on a number of movies, and it's very well done, very pretty, and I like the way it looks. But it's also, you know, you can move the camera more now. It's still not the 70s or whatever where we get to really, you know, cameras that can do a lot of things. But you can move the camera a little more now, and the action scenes and the way the action scenes are, are shot really work the, the horse scene you know the, the wrangling of the horses the plane right. all of that looks great i really like those scenes it doesn't work as well when you're like they're trying to find interesting angles to film these people talk to each other and these angles are interesting you know they're in the house and we, you know we get you know some eli of wallach, them are interesting and some of them are you're right yeah and like you get eli wallach opening that thing and looking at marilyn in the closet and that's kind of a neat scene as she's trying to show off but then you get them sitting in the living room and eli wallach is in that chair and it's like it's not bad. It's just, it's kind of too crisp. Again, it's this yeah. weird thing where it's like, if it was grittier, maybe we slant the camera. We, maybe we do some moving shots. It's a yeah. bit too stationary. And I'm not sure if that's because, again, they, it was the cameras they were working with. And John Huston had been a director for a while, you know, been directing movies. So maybe he, that was his style. But it just doesn't quite mesh together. And I, I would should say, I mean, I think you've said this, but I enjoyed this movie. I think you enjoyed this movie, but it, yes. it doesn't, it, yeah, it just doesn't it's quite odd, get, get there. It's an odd duck. Um, yeah. Let's, do you want to talk about Marilyn's performance a little bit? Well, my, I have my last thing about Houston and then we should talk about Marilyn. But so Houston, one of the things I like about this movie is I mentioned for Some Like It Hot that Billy Wilder probably had some idea of how like society worked and like he had an interest in like women's place in it and like stuff that wasn't necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, the majority viewpoint, you know? Mm -hmm. And John Houston didn't have any of that shit as far as I can tell. He was interested in men and masculinity. <laughs> yeah. and that's what he cared about. He and it's seems not to like, have been a man's man. 
Yeah. And from what I've listened to from, you must remember this, you know, man's man. And this movie is about men. Mm-hmm. Marilyn Monroe's in it. And I think she has some interesting lines and her character has something to it. I know that she didn't necessarily like the character and there is some, I mean, it's still pretty much the virginal. You know, we'll trope. get to it. We'll get to the Marilyn stuff. But Houston is interesting to me because he is a bit of a time capsule. Like, you know, and you see him later in, in Chinatown as an actor and he's playing this horrible character and I'm just looking at him and I'm like, you know, I know that you weren't this pre- person, John Houston, but you, you scare me a little. Like John Houston scares me a little in that, that role. Right. And like, he's just such a man's man. So I kind of appreciate like watching something he makes, he made as sort of like a peek back at that kind of thought process and like that. And there are men now who I'm sure believe in that kind of thing who have that kind of thought. Whereas I'm like, well, it's not like all of his characters are toxic. You know, yeah. ma- masculinity is fine. It's a neutral concept. Right. But I wonder if he doesn't realize that sometimes his characters are a bit toxic and not good. Well, so like, it's, it's fascinating from that aspect. He reminds me of Akira Kurosawa. You know, I make a lot of guesses as to uh, uh, directors' attitudes about certain things based on their films. Yeah. And, you know, you can watch films where it's like, I think this person hates women. He and Akira Kurosawa, John Huston, both don't seem that interested. Whereas like uh, Ingmar Bergman, I think, kind of like thought women were victims of the world, but he also thought men were victims of the world. And like Fellini, I think, loved women and was fascinated by women, but also thought they were aliens from another planet. Right. But he was like interested in them. Yeah. I don't, John Huston's not, <laughs> and Akira Kurosawa just don't seem that interested. <laughs> like, no. they don't hate women. They don't dislike them if they meet a woman they'll be nice to them but i mean and again making huge suppositions but that seems to be and they didn't necessarily write you know their their the the screenplays for the movies they did or or so on so you know there's it's it's you know auteur theory is flawed for that reason but it sure comes out in his movies that women are just kind of yeah a thing in the world you know like couches you know like yeah it's they have a purpose and you don't think about it too hard Weirdly, like, you know, you watch some of the, like, you watch some movies where women feature more prominently in them, except that they're like, you know, exploitation flicks. And it's like, that's probably more problematic on the whole, but it's also problematic. And you, you know, you bring this to my attention sometimes that like, it's problematic by omission. Yeah. Like the omission of women characters in a movie where there should be women. Yeah. Like, this isn't, Misfits not, isn't really that because there is Marilyn Monroe, but she's the only, I mean, Thelma Ritter's there too. So I don't yeah. know. But like, it does start to feel like she is a part piece of wallpaper for the other well, characters. Well, it's not like bus stop in that, you know, Marilyn Monroe's character falls in love with a man who kidnaps and assaults her. Right. Um, but it's also hard to take bus stops seriously. And this is a serious film. Yeah. And that makes it different. So I, bus, yeah, stop, I, bus stop, maybe the people wanted it to be taken seriously, but because of how it is, we just can't, which yeah. maybe saves it a little from that. Whereas yeah. this, let, let's start talking about Marilyn. Like she's, Marilyn is still a good actress and she's doing It's neat to role. see her do a, a, a more realistic performance or more a, a more... She has more screen time and more to do in some ways than than the other movies we've been talking about. But yeah. again, she's just kind of reacting to everything. She's just it's it's not that different from some like it hot in some ways, except that it's a better character, even 
Yeah, but I mean, she's just a she's just a bundle of emotions wandering around reacting to the men. Right, and I, I I keep going back to gentlemen prefer blonde because there's an honesty to the characters there that I think Howard Hawks and whoever wrote it, who I've now forgotten, and the actresses bring to it, even though I'm, they're still underwritten, all things yeah. considered. But there's just there's enough there that but it it's isn't the as nature bad. of a movie like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes that the characters are not going to be deep. You're right, like it, and so it kind where, of works. and that's what I was talking about with dialogue too. Like I don't need brilliant dialogue and gentlemen prefer blondes necessarily, although I think it has some good dialogue. Yeah, um, it, it's the nature of that kind of a movie that your characters aren't going to be deep. Your characters should be deep in the misfits. misfits, and it's just she she's deep in the sense of like if there were no other virginal you know saints. Well, she's not virginal in the misfits. She's <sighs> she, she's pure. She's pure. Okay, she's, I'll, I'll go. She's pure. She's she's so this movie, and again, we talked about how it's all about masculinity. It's about fathers and mothers. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe's fathers, the other men all need mothers. Yeah. And that's really what it boils down to. And that's why it's like, I don't mind simplistic ideas like that, but in a movie that's kind of trying to be something more than that, it's just a little bit deflating because. Mm-hmm it doesn't ever feel like it explores that well enough. And Marilyn Monroe, who is the pure mother character, delivers those lines of dialogue as best she can and reacts to things and has to yell at Clark Gable and run out into the-, the That this... might've been my favorite part where she just runs out and screams at them, but she's still, Clark Gable still kind of gets the last moment. I'm gonna say that the men characters to me weren't necessarily deeper, but they yeah. had a little more agency. Like. Yeah. So that at the end, guy, one of Guy's last, or why do I call him Guy? One of Gay's last statements is like, I just wanted it, you know, I don't like, I forget exactly what he says, but the gist of it is, I wanted to, make, wanted my to make, up my own, my, make up my own mind. And it's like, well, that's lovely for you because Marilyn Monroe's character doesn't, and there's a little bit of, of suggestion within the, the, um, the dialogue um, and, you know, I think this is part of what upset Marilyn Monroe that her husband was writing this about her that that she doesn't have agency like I think part of what the movie was saying is that she really has just floated been floatsome or whatever you know just floated from man to man but then then give us something else (laughs) instead of just watching that happen. Yeah, and she she makes like one choice at the beginning of the movie. Well, she she gets her divorce, which is divorce, which is I mean that we like the first twenty minutes probably a bit more because she well, gets, because she, she also a, decides to go out there. That was the other thing. Yeah, those are the things she gets to, to do. There with gay, and after that, she's really just kind of going along with these men on this thing that any reasonable person would know she she, she doesn't like. Why would you take your your girlfriend on that? horse wrangling well, like it just like there's, why there's, is, it's just to make a point for the, there's two for things the audience to me got gay gets to make that last you know he wants to make that choice and i i'm i'm fine with the idea that you need to be responsible for yourself right that's mm-hmm. fine not you know marilyn monroe doesn't because she's a woman i guess but guy gay needs to be responsible for things i mean right. it's fine responsibility but then marilyn uh, uh, uh karina longworth talks about this i think we're like I mean, and it's, it's subtext, it's not, you know, on the forefront, but, you know, Marilyn Monroe, like, you know, she's looking for like a father figure is what you can tell from the beginning of the movie. And she immediately goes to bed with Clark Gable, who's looking for a woman, I guess, and yeah. maybe a mother by the end of it. You know, that's my thought on it. And so she immediately goes to bed with him and it's kind of tragic. 
you know, that here she is sleeping with another man. Yeah. And it doesn't feel good. Yeah. You know, like it's not, and again. And they end I, up together at the end, which goes back to how this has this like European naturalistic feel and yet the Hollywood ending of her and Gay riding off together in that truck and it doesn't feel good. Doesn't yeah, feel and so great. it's like, and again, but, I, liked, I liked this movie and I liked the action scenes and I think there's something here, but it just, it's just, yeah. it's so frustrating. For me, it's that. an interesting, it's more interesting in an intellectual way, which kind of yeah. goes along with, I wish the dialogue had been less intellectual. Yeah. And, you know, no, no film represents its era. No era just cleanly ends and goes into the next. And I think this is a really interesting film. The fact that it's Marilyn Monroe's last completed one, Clark Gable's last completed one, Montgomery Clift isn't going to be with us that much longer. Like yeah. it's, it's a really interesting film, but I have trouble imagining who I'm going to recommend it to that isn't it's kind of a Western. You can recommend it to people like, who like some Westerns, like it hot. But... If people like comedies, watch some like it hot. It's, you know, why not? But like, if you like horse movies, like, I don't think so. <laughs> no, it's, it's a Western. If you like Westerns, you might want to watch the misfits. Like that's really what it looks like to me. Yeah. And, and it, it has an interesting bit in it because Thelma Ritter and Eli Wallach live to be quite old. Yeah. Uh, and Thelma Ritter didn't, it was the lady in the oh. church. It's, um, Oh, what's her name? I'm gonna find her name. I think Eli Wallach made it to Estelle Winwood made it to 101. So she's the lady who was collecting money for the church while Marilyn did the um, um, paddle ball to get money for them to do something. And Eli Wallach made it to 98. But meanwhile, Clark Gable dies to, I think, 12 or something days after this. Right. This is Marilyn Monroe's last completed movie. I think she dies two years later. The next year. The next year. And so, and then Montgomery Clift, who he looks really good in the role as a battered, sort of beaten young cowboy type. And I'm wondering how much of that was makeup and how much of that was Montgomery Clift. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. He's in a few movies. I mean, he lives another, I think, seven years, but he's only in a few movies after this because I think he was just really five years. Doing he lives well. five years. Yeah. Yeah, like he wasn't doing well after this. So there's an odd. It's it's kind of like uh, Rebel Without a Cause, where there's this kind of odd aftertaste mm. of the movie where like you know a lot of those stars kind of went on to tragic ends and or stand by me i was talking a friend recently watched stand by me and i'm like if you watched it in the late 80s and 90s when Corey heim i think no it's not Corey feldman was um starting to fall apart river phoenix had gotten stabbed to death you know there was a tragic yeah. note to that movie yeah. that you don't feel the same way now no because so... it's, it's it's further away from that and it's and it's weirdly, you know, we I guess we should probably start concluding this, but also conclude our thoughts on Marilyn now that we're done with our our, mm-hmm. our month of Marilyn. And you know, I was listening again to Karina Longworth's episode two and three of Marilyn. It is, you know, she is a woman who, as far as we know, you know, was molested when she was young. She was in foster care. She didn't have great mother figures. She didn't have much in the way of father figures. And these movies that she was in often reflect her trying to find, you know, men with money and really the misfits as her last movie where she's looking for a father figure and she has to be a mother figure to all these broken men. Like it's, I, you know, it, I, I was thinking like, what if she made it to 80? And I'm like, if she made it to 80, you know, that would have been wonderful. You know, no one deserves to die young from either suicide or a drug overdose, you know, mm-hmm. either way if she made it to 80, you know, she probably wouldn't be quite as famous because she would have 
lived past that era and hopefully would have gotten herself together. Who knows? You know, you know, sometimes when you, when someone dies young, you know, you have, you get the, right. all that you have of them is kind of this, this glimmer moment. And right. you don't have the, the decline necessarily for Marilyn. And I think of the misfits and it's like, I, that kind of is the movie that is the last movie she made it. You know, yeah. men, it's just, it's got it, that. It adds something. It adds something to her legacy that that's the last movie she got released, yeah. even though she worked yeah. on another movie that didn't. And, my honestly, my parting thought is like, you know, it, I, I feel a little sad about Marilyn. You know, I liked her movies. I think but that's I feel part of why sad. I like her. And I, you know, her death, which was likely a simple drug overdose, probably, I kind of agree with Karina Longworth. I don't think it was a suicide. And it's interesting to me in that I think she was one of the first mega stars that died that way. And I think that's why there's so many conspiracy theories around it because now, Prince, Michael Jackson, Corey Haim, you know, like all these other, you know, relatively famous people, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, Heath Ledger, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of movie stars and, and music, you know, famous musicians, Elvis Presley, I think, have uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, like a lot of people have died, but I can't think of anyone before Marilyn Monroe who was as famous as she was who died that way. Alcoholics, and, but not really drugs. You know, and, and uh, you know, um, it's just, it is sad and tragic and it definitely colors her legacy. I think I found an unexpected interest in following her movies and kind of seeing how much of that era she was and kind of watching that era slowly change a little bit. Yeah. And um, um, I wish, I, I don't know how much people talk about Marilyn Monroe outside of film. I mean, who knows? But I, I'm a little sad we didn't get to any of, you and I had talked briefly about maybe watching, you know, the biopics about her. Like, yeah. I wish the narrative about her were a little different though too, because I think she, she was a tough woman too at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And there was, there was something, you know, she wanted to be a star. She worked hard. She had her own production company. She, she was a working girl. And and artists being unhappy with their performances and 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 taking it really hard and needing emotional support is is a thing. You know, yeah. like that again goes to the people we were just I just mentioned. Like most of them felt that same pressure and that same struggle and frustration. And so, you know, it it'd be nice to have a different narrative about it. Yeah, and I want to watch the biopics too. And I just said she was a working girl. That's probably the wrong term, but like she made money. She was a powerful person with influence, you know. Yeah. And I think about you know we, you know, just stuff we've listened to about Barbara Streisand or, or other women, you know, Polly mm -hmm. Platt. Like it's interesting, like where Marilyn Monroe probably fits in this lineage of women trying to use you know influence power and you yeah. know one of the ways to do it in that era. You know, this is post war, so I think more women are working, but this is still, you know, the women are not necessarily occupying places of power. And Marilyn Monroe was a woman who had power. You know, she was an actress, you know, entertainers tended to be where women had more power, I think, for a while. And it's interesting how she fits into that. And I, I you know, I feel sad because she didn't get to live longer and, and some of the tragic personal stuff. And also that she didn't really get to sort of be powerful going on into life. So it's, yeah. but you know, she, there was more there than necessarily people might give her credit for at least the very blanket sort of uh, sometimes what you hear about her, you know, there, there's more there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So on to Gigi and Lily. Yes. It's time for a completely different tone and note. Yes, um, we're, 
I made Theo watch Gigi and Lily. We're going to spoil both of them a lot. Gigi, Lily you, from 1953 and Gigi from 1958. So do you want to synopsize one and then I'll synopsize the next because we're going to talk about them together? Yes, we are talking about these together. And I would like to point out that you wanted me to watch Gigi and I chose of my own volition to watch Lily. You get Let extra points. Thank you. So which uh, one do you want to synopsize? I want to synopsize Lily. Okay. <laughs> so Lily is about a 16-year-old woman in France, Leslie, played by Leslie Caron, mm -hmm. uh, whose father has just died and is trying and has made her way to a small village where a friend of her father's, this butcher, mm -hmm. is supposed to help take care of her now, except this butcher has also just died. And now she has nowhere to go. So a magician, who, well, first she gets molested by the guy next door, but then a magician sort of takes her to the local circus, the, the carnival that's in town for however long. That he works for. That he works for, where he works as the magnificent Mark, I think. Marcus. Marcus. I forget the name of the actor. But so she goes and she like tries to get a job there and ultimately ends up working with the puppeteer played by Mel Ferrar, who has shown up a few times for us lately. And that's kind of the movie. She works for him and it's kind of about love and what you're supposed to do as a woman maybe and as a man and how you're supposed to just be completely open and uh and and just utterly as pure as a bell so that when you strike it <laughs> the note is just just so clean so Gigi is um a later film also starring Leslie Caron uh takes place in the turn of the century uh France uh Paris and um, famously opens with Maurice Chevalier singing Thank Heavens for Little Girls, which has not aged well. And um, <laughs> Gigi um, is a young woman who's being groomed to be a courtesan um, for a family friend. And she does not want to be a courtesan. She wants, uh, she's in love with him and wants to get married. And then they do that. Um, and so... The reason I had you watch these is that you have recently discovered that the 50s were crazy. The, the and... pure joy that exists in appreciating how utterly problematic and absurd <laughs> and just out there because these 50s movies are. You've enjoyed, I'm going to recap real quick. You've enjoyed noirs for having this messed up morality. Only noirs are in black and white and everybody dies at the end and everybody's sad. Yes. I like these because they're bright and colorful and people sing about having memory problems and being thankful for little girls and what they can do for little boys and they have happy endings. Yes. Um, and it's just, it's just messed up. And I had some, some thoughts about the pair of them, but I think I should let you talk first. So, so I watched Gigi first and then Lily. So in G Gigi took me longer to figure out because it's not like it's a musical and it's actually Lerner and Lowe, which I now understand were a, were, I guess, two, two men. I don't know, but I don't know that much about them, but they also did um, The Little Prince, which mm. I think comes out in the seventies and is also very weird and out there. And yeah. the songs in G and they're, the songs are not bad. They're just very different for me. And Gigi also has... Thank heavens for little girls, for they get bigger every day. Which Maurice Chevalier was probably a perfectly nice man, but is a fucking pedophile in this movie. It's just an utter pedophile in um, Gigi. And, the, and so there's that aspect to it. And like everything with Maurice Chevalier, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, 
everything with him, like the songs he sings and just how he goes about things is just like problematic to the absurd. <laughs> Meanwhile, Leslie Caron and Gaston, well, it's actually Gigi and Gaston. I don't remember the actor's name for Gaston either. Um, they're like- That's like, Louise Jordan. They're all French. Jordan. These are all yeah. genuinely French people speaking in what sounds like a fake French accent. But yes, who, it what do sounds we very phono. Phony, <laughs> like very fake and phony. And so I, it took me a minute to sort of understand what was weird about it because I was watching it and I'm like, this is amusing. It's technicolor and this, this, the songs are horrible, um, but wonderful and horrible at the same time. And we get to By the horrible, the you mean the subject matter, not necessarily musical quality. Yes, exactly. And we get to the end of it and the two, you know, Gigi and Gaston end up together and I'm like, why is, why is, you know, this is, I'm enjoying this, but what am I really watching? And I thought about it and I'm like, oh, Gigi is this carefree 16 year old living and loving her life, except that to be with Gaston, she has to become a high society lady, which is yeah. everything that she isn't. So she must conform to be happy. Yeah. Whereas Gaston is this sort of annoyed rich guy who really only enjoys Gigi and this like these poor people who are, you know, poor people are quirky or something, which is problematic, <laughs> but whatever. It's more interesting than conforming. And so he, you know, he likes them and he kind of likes the idea of like going out into the beach and, you know, he takes Gigi out to, 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 to on a, you know, a weekend vacation somewhere. And he's like, everything is a bore in high society. And he has to conform to high society to be with Gigi. So at the end of the movie, they're in love and happy. But in truth, they are utterly miserable because both of them had to give up who they were as people. But the music swells and we're happy and it's great. It's just, it took me a minute to get there and realize, oh, they both had to become completely who they were not to be with each other and to be <laughs> together. And that is utterly and it's clearly a happy ending, though. The movie it's tells you that this is ending. a happy ending. Yes. In truth, though, it's horrifying. It's just yeah. horrifying. You cannot You know I you love are. things that are horror films. I love yes. horror films. Gigi is a horror film. Yes, it is. And Lily, so that's Gigi. It took me a minute to get there, and then I got there, and I'm like, yes, this movie is pretty silly and absurd. Lily is out of the gate, just like <laughs> so troublesome and problematic. It like slaps you in the face. Even before... Mel Farrar slaps Leslie Caron, like even before we get there. Because Lily, first of all, met Leslie Caron, who was probably, who was what, 22 or something? Yeah, she was young, 21 or something. Yeah, again, she's, she's, she's been, she's playing like teenagers, even though she's in her 20s. And she's got this horrible haircut, just awful haircut, where it's like her bangs are too high up. And she's got this outfit that's supposed to make her look like a schoolgirl, but she's too big. And like, it just makes her look like she's an infant you know or something and she's you know tries she's like attaching herself like full full-heartedly like the purest like doesn't believe anything bad could happen to this man next door who sells stuff and immediately he like molests her and it's like that's awful and like the movie just sort of brushes over that and we move on and later some someone says like oh that man wasn't so bad he had good intentions <laughs> and meanwhile she won't like the man she is in love with says that the man she's in love with says that the magnificent mark who doesn't care about her she's just a pretty girl for him to sort of like attract the attention of and maybe sleep with who knows <laughs> yes and like she's not worldly at all and it's like but somehow the movie presents this as being a good thing like she should be this pure and idealistic and this like 
willing to give herself up to whoever, whichever man so walks by her in that instant. It's as if Cupid is standing on her shoulder, just like poking her with an arrow, just because he's bored and doesn't care. So that the first man she sees becomes who she's interested in. And it is so like, again, we talk about like people say like the millennials are all crazy and don't know anything. And there's all this stuff wrong with them. And it's like, this was, this is 1953. And this was a popular movie. Like there is, yeah. oh my God, I'm surprised we don't have just like swaths of women laying dead everywhere because they just trusted every man. And that man was a serial killer, like just swaths Well, the seventies happened and I, I don't blame oh, yeah. women for- No, I- You're I making, like, you're sounding like you're victim blaming, which I- I'm not, I'm not trying to victim blame. I'm just saying like this, this movie teaches some really bad lessons. Uh, <laughs> And not and not all women are susceptible to just watching a movie and being like, oh my God, I'm going to be exactly like that main character. No, no. But like the way this movie makes it seem like, just like, oh my God. Yeah. Anyways, later, the other parts, I mean, that's just, that's just some of the movie. The rest of it is like grumpy Mel Farrar speaking to her with puppets, like talking her down from a suicide with puppets <laughs> and like slapping her in the face and later talking about how she's a, a pure bell to be stricken or whatever. And it's like, it's not, they definitely don't mean for it. To, I don't think they mean for it to touch the, each other like that, but like, whoa, that's just some really stupid line. Well, and you're just talking about the ending of Gigi where it's like, oh, they both conform. So now they can, they're no longer themselves and they can live together. Like the ending, it's like, oh, this is a 16 year old entering an abusive relationship. And that's the end of Lily. And how old is Mel Ferrar supposed to be? He's like, I think he's like in, just like 37 or something in real life, except he's 37 and she's supposed to be 16, but he's never given an age. And it's like, I mean, okay, look, we gave my life with James Dean a pass. The ages there make me a little uncomfortable, but there are reasons we gave it a pass. We don't need to go into it, right? Right. This movie does not get a pass. There is no pass for Lily. It is problematic that they end up together. <laughs> um, and and the, <laughs> worth mentioning too is like these are not like weird fluke films. Like these are the most popular movies of of the years they came out in. Academy yet, Award nominees. And yet nobody. I, how many people really remember them? I wonder. Well, Gigi, I think, is still pretty well-known. I don't think Lily is as well-known, but um, I think you touched on it pretty well, but what I've been thinking about it is, yeah, you've just danced around the edge of what I want to say. Karina Longworth talks about Marilyn Monroe, to, to go back to what uh, we were talking about before, in that her difference between Jean Harlow and Marilyn Monroe was that Marilyn Monroe doesn't wink. She's, she's wholehearted and sincere, and there's that, that, that quality to her, where Jean Harlow is always kind of like, you're in on the joke with me, right? Yeah. I think that these movies, when they wink and don't wink, is like, because there is a self-awareness in the movie Gigi. Sometimes. Like, there's this whole thing where Gaston's, you know, is told to break up with his mistress. He's told to do it in a very public way, like Marie Chevalier's character is pushing him to do this. And then she attempts suicide and everybody's like oh, God, laughing about, about how that. she, Jesus. but to so me, there's a, there's a winking quality to that. The movie yeah. knows that it's being dark. The movie knows that, that this is satirical, that we're making fun of, of a certain kind of high society French attitude sure. so that then we can reaffirm our American. And this is, uh, Gigi was directed by, um, Vincent Minnelli, um, you know, Lysa's daddy. Yeah. Um, so 
who's American. The movie is for Americans. It's it's it just it's, takes place in France because French people are cool. Yeah. Um, so there's that quality where the movie is letting you in on the joke. Like we're making fun of these people and the way they think, right? But then yeah. there's stuff like Thank Heavens for Little Girls, which is like dead serious. Yes. And then there's that ending, which is like, no, really, like this is a happy ending. Yeah. Lily, I don't think ever winks. I think with absolute honest sincerity, and I don't want to demean people who work in carnivals or do puppets, but even there's something even bizarre about like, yes, Lily is talked out of killing herself by some puppets, but then they become a huge act because people like watching Lily talk to the puppets so much so that they then get poached to like do this other thing. And it just seems so strange to me. I yeah. don't know how carnivals work. It just felt very like. I, I don't know. Is this like a small act showing up at like Cirque du Soleil or something? Uh, you know, I don't know. And it's clear that Lily at times forgets that she like she she refers to one of the puppets as her boyfriend by name. Like yes. Carrot Top is my boyfriend, she says. Right, which is also weird because there's a carrot top comedian and anyways, whatever. Right, but but the point is that like, there's no winking. There's no like, isn't it funny how she thinks the puppet's her boyfriend? It's like, no, she thinks the puppet's her boyfriend. Like, it's very sincere and it gives it this really odd feeling <laughs> because yes. you're yes, watching it, it and you're like, I don't know. I, totally, I don't know how to take this in. Except for us, we were just like, this is delightful and bizarre. And I, yeah. Like, I love it. I love it for, for, for presenting things that just seem unreal as like, well, and, and, and I, I love the concept of a Lily. I love the concept of a woman who's has trouble with reality, but can deal with talking to puppets and a man who has trouble with reality, but can deal with the world through his puppets, like meeting each other and falling in love. Like that's a fun story. If it were done in a self-aware way, I think I could, wholeheartedly sincerely embrace it what? but done in a way where you think that a 16 year old is entering an abusive relationship with a much older man who and, and is a little confused about things i can't love it in a sincere way <laughs> no and like i can't either <laughs> at, at all and well and also mel ferrar's character is like his leg is he has a i guess he i don't know if it's just an injury or if he's missing a part of his leg it's i guess it's never outright said or maybe it is. he's injured he's injured yeah. he limps he limps and so like i like the idea of that character then becoming a puppeteer you know there's some symbolic symbolism there and you know lily has these great fantastical thoughts in her head you know the whole i don't mind the idea of again somebody who has trouble living in reality having all these fantasies you're right it's an interesting idea and i could see a good like honest good movie with serious or not tones in it being made of this, but that's not what Lily is. <laughs> Lily is, as you say, you kind of have to love it because it's so bizarre and wrong. I mean, there's this, and also there's this surrealist, the fantastical scene at the end where she's like leaving, you know, it's our last scene in the movie of Lily. Right. And she's got, you know, she's going through with her puppets. And so they've got these full-size real puppets and they look terrifying to some degree <laughs> and then they turn into Mel Farrar who sort of looks at her and like floats away and so it's like and like but at the end the one that she goes up to hug after she figures out what's going on in her fantasy is the cowardly character 
which is like, oh, she has to love the cowardly side of Mel Ferrar too. And I'm like, that's kind of a clever idea and I'd like it and really think something of it if it wasn't in Lily. <laughs> but did, in a way, does Bo of Bus Stop come off better because he has to grow as a person in order to get Marilyn Monroe? Whereas I'm not sure that Paul um the the hero like does he learn anything before he gets lily like she has to go dance with some life-size puppets to realize that she loves him but he's just waiting back there yeah <laughs> yeah you're probably right yeah i mean he, he he has to learn that he has worth even with a bum leg and he learns that without lily with those other guys so there's some character growth there i mean but... and and again it's weird to me how, how people, again, it's not necessarily like everybody's talking about Lily, so that's part of it, but like the critics of the time, like Bosley Crowther, who I question based on various things that I have read about him and his opinion, like really loved it. I am completely unsurprised to find out Pauline Kale did not care for it. Um, <laughs> Pauline Kale, according to Wikipedia, called it sickly whimsy and referred to Mel Farrar's narcissistic masochistic smiles. So like she she knew like I don't always agree with Pauline Kale I think sometimes she twists herself in knots in order to make a movie she didn't care for sound bad but um but I'm with her on this one I think as a woman she was like something's wrong here <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah. think this is right but well, I I'm just so I'm bem I, I again with the the winking I'm bemused by the sincerity of something that is so wrong about so many things and it makes me think about the bad movies where you just see someone sincerely trying to do something and getting everything wrong except that this was the most highest grossing mgm musical of 1953 so it's it's not like you know some weird also lily like and i don't care about the oscars really but like just to get a taste for the times like lily was nominated and won for best music for score yeah. and then it was nominated for best director best actress for leslie caron best yeah. writing again best cinematography. it's not something that didn't you know again it's not it's not what we think of as a bad film, which are these kind of like, you know, made for TV or, you know, never even saw, you know, never made it to the movie theater things from the 80s and 90s. This is this was a major motion picture. Yeah. And I think Gigi was also nominated. Gigi won a record breaking nine Academy Awards at the yes. 1959 Oscars, yes. including Best Motion Picture, Best Director. Best cinematography, art direction, screenplay, costume design, film editing, and, scoring, and, and, and song. objectively speaking, it's a better film than Lily. I mean, it 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 it's got it's it's a movie, <laughs> like it's yeah. a real film. Lily is kind of uneven and a little funky in places. Like Gigi, like I can see why it won those. It's just the 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 everything's so weird about it. So I'm I'm glad you went on that journey with me. I went on the journey with you. I'm glad. I, I feel like this has been a multi-year project of mine because like a couple of years ago, if I'd shown you these, you would have just been like, I didn't like them. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, me and I forget, we were, were we, or maybe it was Jill. And I don't know, I was talking to somebody. It was like a year ago, if you had shown this to me, I would have been like, nope, not having it. <laughs> yeah. But today I can honestly say that I enjoyed these movies <laughs> in spite, you know, understanding the problematic nature of them, <laughs> but just yeah. enjoying the... <laughs> The pure, I don't know, just the pure something of it. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, if Lily came out now, it'd be like, no. no. <laughs> like, this is not. And it but wasn't okay. 
it, it wasn't really okay then either, but it, it, it's just, it's such an, an we are 70 thing. years removed from it. And that matters. Yes. <laughs> All right. Should we do a quick wrap up? Yeah. I don't think I have a ton to say. I don't either. Why don't I go through my movies really quickly? Okay. Invasion of the Astro Monster was the next uh, Godzilla movie. Um, and <sighs> like the name. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the outfits from it are great. If you want to see some really excellent alien outfits, you know, just completely, you know, let skin tight like leather or something. I don't know. Maybe not leather. It's probably some something. That was pretty amusing. I enjoyed Invasion of the Astro Monster. It was very goofy. Um, it has all the monsters in it. There's lots of lightning and thunder and they're in a, a spaceship going somewhere and it's great. I enjoyed it. I watched Rumble, the Indians that rocked the world. I incorrectly said last week that it was India Indians when this is actually Native American Indians. It's mm. not a politically correct term anymore, but it's in the title of the movie. So that's what I got for you. Uh, it was really interesting. I learned things I didn't know about music. I liked the story it told. It was very good. We watched Merrily We Go to Hell, which was a Dorothy Arzner film. I enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. It is about like dysfunctional marriage. It's pre-code. There's some stuff there. It's not as interesting as maybe like Dance Girl Dance, which I think I still like more and is another Arzner film. It doesn't quite have the, 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 the writing that reaches that level, but I, I still liked the sort of like stuff that goes on in Merrily We Go to Hell. There's interesting things from that era that you don't see in film again for a little while because of the Hayes Code. So yeah, mm -hmm. there's that stuff. And also I thought it was more or less well-written. I watched It's Alive yesterday, which is a 70s horror film. Um, it was, I almost want you to watch it, but it's leaving in two days. So I'm not going to make you do that. But it's it's about babies and, and the baby is a monster. It's not that it doesn't take long to figure that out. And you might appreciate that kind of movie. Um, it was good. I enjoyed it. It wasn't great. It features a score from Bernard Herrmann, who is famous for showing a lot of other really famous movies, and it's a really good score. Um, there's some really Most amusing... famously, he does a lot of Hitchcock. Yeah, Hitchcock, and he did Citizen Kane. Um, and It's Alive uh, has a good soundtrack, and also there's some amusing scenes where the light quality shifts from shot to shot, <laughs> which is unfortunate, but hey, they were doing their best, I guess. Uh, and then I also watched Working Girls, which is another Arzner film, which I liked, I think, a little more than Merrily We Go to Hell. It's just a little bit more complete of a movie. And the characters I thought were interesting and they're working girls, but they kind of get what they want. And like the men aren't like all good or bad. There's kind of somewhere in between. And there's kind of a silly ending to it that isn't fully work. Oh, my computer's running out of battery. Uh, that doesn't fully work, but otherwise I kind of liked it. And my last one that I watched this morning before we recorded, because it's leaving the Criterion in two days, is a Dracula AD 1972, which features Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and some other people. And it is a Hammer film. And I think I just like costume dramas. And also there's like, you know, 70s, like funky, groovy music that, you know, you're supposed to dance to like this, except <laughs> it's playing. Yeah, except that it's it's playing while Peter Cushing is facing off against vampires. So it's like, <laughs> this is just really silly. I don't know. I enjoyed it. That's what I watched. Um, I'm continuing to watch the epically long Korean dramas because I find it very soothing that people are screaming and crying and nothing is happening for hours and hours and hours. And I love it. Um I don't remember, you know, I 
try not to repeat myself, but I finished um, the 133 episode one. Each episode was 30 minutes, though, so it wasn't quite as long as it seems versus the 61 hour episode one. Uh, and it had a strong marry and procreate message, which always makes me think of John Carpenter's They Live. And you know what? It's okay to like things that have messages that you don't really like. I marry and procreate or don't. It's fine. I don't care. I still like this. I still think I think it's funny that it was like you really should just get married and have babies. And I'm like, I'm not gonna, but um, I still really <laughs> like this show. I thought it was fun. Uh, I've started another one. It's another one of the 60 episode, one hour long episode shows. And so far, no one has moved in and no one has become unexpectedly pregnant. Um, Excellent. And people have gotten new jobs, but not the way they normally do. So it's kind of, it's an interesting one because it revolves around um, a woman character who is very, has some real emotional issues. She's very reserved because of this relationship with her father. And it's interesting to see so far these movies, these movies, these TV shows have been like, it's about a family. Um, and this is about a family, but it, it centers so much about around this one woman who's really struggling and that on an emotional level. And it's, I think that's kind of an interesting South Korea stereotypically is more conservative. They want you to marry and procreate. You can kind of take what you will from that message. But then they have these interesting kind of feminist focuses sometimes. It's, it's just, it's an odd mix. Anyway, um, I've watched, other than that, I watched kind of the movies you did. And that's where I am. Cool. I will not marry and procreate at the moment. <laughs> what do you want? Do you know what you want me to watch next week or? Oh, gosh, I don't. Um, shoot, I should have thought of this beforehand. Um, also, we should start, we need to ramp up our social media a little bit and let people know what we're watching in advance of what we're watching and stuff like that. But let it be known if you are watching this and you care, which is probably like one person, we'll try and do that. Uh, I'll think of something for you to watch. Um, yeah, you said uh, you're running out of computer battery, so maybe yeah. this is where we so, end. This is where we end. Just so everybody knows, if you are watching this, we're going to be doing, December is going to be the month of 2020 catch-up, where we watch movies that came out this year that have <laughs> some Movies of, that trickled through. Yeah, and like that might be good or not, but that I've heard of from reviewers and stuff. So we're going to watch those. Um, I don't know what we're doing this week, but we'll let you know maybe in a post. And also, I'm going to watch a few movies that are leaving the Criterion. That's what I plan to watch, and I'm sure you're just going to watch more dramas. Sounds good. Yeah. Excellent. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching. Bye. Bye.